So we step into this passage and we know that this big feast is already in progress. It's a half a year banquet. It's followed by a seven day feast, which is uh, uh, full of the display of all of the king's valuable possessions, especially goblets that are designed each to be different. So it's kind of like being in a, in a fancy museum, only you're allowed to use these goblets and drink as much as you want by command of the king. The king's goal here is to have this huge extended power lunch. The idea is to gather support for his campaign to go to Greece. That's what he's after. He wants people on his side. He wants them to uh, come with him. And there are two scenes. We saw the first one in, in verses 1 to 9. And Queen Vashti is in a separate place having a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. You see how Persia works. She has a place where, where she can have a feast, but she's not with the king. And everyone's drinking and they're having, having a good time. They're getting massively drunk. And she's off on, on uh, the side. And yet the king still wants to get to the final climax of this power lunch. And the final climax of this power lunch is to show off the queen. That's what he wants to do. He wants the queen to come into uh, the presence of everybody, and he wants it to be this massive uh, patriotic moment. Like when the, uh, the, the royal family has, has a wedding, and you see uh, the, the bride and all of her display, and you see these, these massive displays of uh, royal uh, presence in, in uh, what takes place over in England. And the people of England are feeling patriotic at that time. They, they feel uh, like there's something royal and rich going on. That's what the king wants. He wants this uh, display of the queen to be the sealing of the deal. The final nail, making the, the table secure, the, the power lunch established, people on his side to go to Greece. So the question that we ask as we look at this passage is this, first, first and foremost, about the marriage relationship between the king and his, and his wife, because it's, it's pretty bad if you look at it. Or is this about the relationship between a king and a queen? You see, some people are back in the land and others are in bondage. But the ones that are, that are in the land of Persia are not the most God-fearing ones. They're not the most faithful. In fact, Esther doesn't even mention God. Can God use a time like this? The relationship between this king and this queen? Can God work out his plan of salvation through such a king? And such a queen? And the answer is yes. That's what the book of Esther is about. God working out his redemptive plans through the operation of a pagan king and through this queen who said no. There's great feasts laid out. Uh, the, the king has great possessions. He's sharing them. But there's something that he considers to be his trophy. It's his trophy wife. The wife who's beautiful to look at, we're told in the passage, the wife that he wants to show off. 
He wants her to come and he wants this power lunch to be sealed with this display that will make people respond uh, with this sense that they want, I want to be on the side of this king. He's shown the highest treasures in his royal treasury and he considers his wife to be one of them. Basically a possession. Like the other treasures, but you know, the, the big one that I'm bringing out to show you, that's how he views his wife. He's been showing off his riches for half a year. He wants his wife to come in like the bride at a wedding. Like the great moment when you see the queen in the, in the royal weddings on TV. We have to understand something. In verse 4 and in verse 11, there are, there's specific language that's used um, that speaks of the purpose for which uh, the king was taking these actions. Uh, in verse 4, uh, he showed um, the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his majesty. Uh, and then in verse uh, 11, he uh, is bringing out Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials. The purpose for which the king was doing this was for himself. It was for his own purposes. He wanted to amass support for his campaign to Greece, and he was doing this all for himself. So he brings out the queen. He wants to bring her out at the climax of a seven-day feast. We're told in verse 10 that the heart of the king was merry with wine. That word merry might sound like, oh, he's very happy. He's very, very happy. But it's a word that's used in other places like the, uh, 1 Samuel 25 and uh, 2 Samuel 13 regarding Nabal and, and Ammon to speak of being drunk. The king was royally drunk. And there's something you need to know about Persia. The Persians actually believed that they should make their most important decisions while intoxicated. That was how they got the spirit and, and were ready to make such important decisions. Sounds odd to us that you would want to make important political decisions when you're, when you're heavily drunk, but they believed that that gave them spiritual insight. And so this is the time when the heart of the king is merry with wine. He commands these seven eunuchs to bring out the queen. Seven eunuchs, notice, no threat to the, the queen there because they're eunuchs. They've been castrated or um, unable to um, take advantage of the queen. But she is being brought out like a beautiful object. She's got to wear her royal crown. And she's got to show her beauty to the people and the officials. All of these drunken people, drunken men. The king is drunk. Come on, just show your beauty. Fear to look upon. She wants, he wants everyone to say, wow. And you can see the problem immediately. The heart of Persia is being shown to us in living color. The king desires to show off the queen because he believes he has power to do that. And this is the situation in which the Jews find themselves in Persia. A situation in which they are in a regime 
that is dominated by power to this degree. If the king is going to treat his queen this way, we know that this is a land where power comes from the top and it presses down on people. And this is supposed to be the final display of his power, only there's only one problem. The queen understands her position in the empire in such a way that she feels entitled to say no. She refused the king's command. The reason that she refused is not specifically described for us. Some have gone beyond scripture and they've said things like, well, she was only supposed to wear a crown, nothing else. But the point is she's coming in to a room of drunken men and the whole point is to show off her beauty and to show the crown. This is how I want you to enter this room. So it doesn't really require us to, to, to go in that direction to say that she doesn't want to come into the presence of all of these drunken people at the, at the command of her husband, the king. And we must notice something, that this is the way in which God is going to bring deliverance to his people in the land of Persia. This is a sovereign God, that he can operate through the pagan actions of this power-hungry king and the action of this, of this queen in saying no, saying no to this king, this is what paves the way for Esther to become queen. This is how God brings into motion the mechanism that will allow his people to be saved. In a book that doesn't mention God, God is operating in very clear ways. It's amazing. God has the power to bring about upheaval, even through the pagan actions of a king like this. We don't know for sure why Vashti refused. It's clear enough that she was being asked to show off her beauty and she refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. And so how is the king going to respond? This is supposed to be the final step. This is supposed to be the climax of the power lunch that's been going on for half a year. I put a lot of effort into this. This is the moment where everyone's going to be on my side. He's angry. He's furious. It says here in verse 12, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. He's enraged. Here's the one who can display his power for half a year. And he's enraged. Here's the one who can give away alcohol freely for that same period of time. And he's enraged. Here's one who's prepared to take on his last rival, Greece. He lost, by the way. He's angry. The king, at the very height of his power play, trying to gather people to his side, is revealed to be powerless over his queen. And so he's angry. In fact, some, some writers actually think that anger is a, a major part of the plot in the book of Esther. In chapter 7, the king uh, uh, is angry because of what Haman has done. It's been revealed to him. We'll get there. But anger plays a key role in this story. It sets up Esther replacing Queen Vashti, it sets up 
the activity uh, that the king will take against Haman. Anger. That's a major part of the plot. But in this case, the anger of the king is pointing in the direction of what amounts to a legal crisis for him. In verses 13 to 15, we find out about this legal crisis. Who's he going to turn to? He can't talk to Queen Vashti because she refused to come. In his drunken state, uh, in his anger, he turns to those that he relies upon. Those that are really his, his uh, counselors. He turns to the wise men who understood the time. This was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. Those being closest to him, Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memucon, the seven princes of Persian media. And these are very important people because they are described uh, in the original language as the seven who see the face of the king. What that meant is they could, they could come into the king's presence unannounced. And if you know the book of Esther, you know how important that is. Esther was trembling to come into the king's presence unannounced. She asked people to pray for her. To fast for her, I should say. But just think about this king and his anger. He's a pagan king. He's acting like an unbeliever. He's angry. How are we taught to respond in such times? We are taught in the word of God to meet with someone that sins against us and to show them their fault. Matthew 18. We're told to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4, 15. Does the king do any of this? No, he's a pagan king. He's not addressing this problem in the way that you and I have the resources to address it. And yet God still works. We have resources in order to see this situation uh, in its full foolishness. The book of Esther is really a parody. It's, it's like, as I said before, the Babylon Bee of the ancient days. It's, it's a satire. It's designed to poke fun at the, at the foolishness of the, of the empire. He goes to his advisors instead of going to Queen Vashti. Persian law takes over. It's a legal crisis. She doesn't follow direction. She's saying no. What do we do? Esther uh, will show herself to be actually more willing to listen to someone, particularly Mordecai, who raised her, as we move on in the book of Esther. This will set up the means by which she is viewed as someone who is better, according to Menukhan's terminology. But the king has this group of advisors that he relies upon. He relies upon these advisors uh, because uh, they are close to him, because they have access to his presence, as we find out, uh, and they ranked highest in his kingdom. And his concern is, what, we, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? 
because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. What does the law say about this? Well, it doesn't say anything. We're drunk. The king is asking us a question about the law, and now we've got to come up with an answer. We've got to think on our feet. So Mamukon speaks, uh, he pipes up. He has some wisdom. He has an interpretation of what, of what uh, should be done. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Let me just think about that statement for a second. Is that true? Queen Vashti refused to come into the presence of the king dressed with her, with her crown and showing off her beauty before a bunch of drunken men so that the king could establish uh, a group of people who would go with him to Greece. Is it true that Queen Vashti has wronged all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus? No! Memucon is laying it on thick. He's exaggerating the situation. He's blowing it out of proportion. This is foolish talk. But this is how Persia answers this question. This is how they deal with it. Memucon is being a diplomat. He's deflecting the sense of shame that the king feels by saying that this action of the queen has affected everybody. Not just you, king. It's affected everybody. We're all affected by this. We know how you feel. No, you don't. King Memikon is actually saying something about himself when he declares this to be a massive Persian problem. See, this is how Persians think, uh, especially when they're drunk and they're making uh, decisions when they're drunk. This will impact all of the households in Persia. That's what they have to say. Verse 18 um, this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. Rebellion in the ranks, king. This is about to go viral. This is going to be a massive problem. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to do something about it. Khan speaking up, intoxicated advisor to the king, intoxicated and angry king who needs to be calmed down. Yeah, you're right. You're right, Khan. Everybody's going to act the same way. Even though there's nobody else in the entire Persian kingdom who is in exactly the same situation as Vashti. So then Mamikon expresses his idea. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. That's important. That was the language that we saw in Daniel 6 
that King Darius was so upset about because it was written in the law that couldn't be changed. And so he's losing sleep. This law that cannot be altered is going to be very important in the book of Esther. But look at what Memucan presents. That Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus. Hasn't that already happened? Memucan is recommending that the king establish by law something that Vashti has already decided to do in order to demonstrate some sort of power in this situation, in order to demonstrate their dominance. The same kind of thinking that allowed them uh, before in the section that we looked at before to say, uh, by order of the king, drink as much as you want. So this is how Persia works. Everything has to be commanded. Everything has to be regulated by the law that comes from the king and his advisors. Everything. If something is out of that sort of control, we need to step on it and we need to establish control. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. That word better means obedient, better. One that's not going to say no. In an important moment in political history, in the, the umpire of Persia, one who's not going to say no like this. We need to write a law so that this is not going to happen again. And then he makes the incredible claim in verse 20, that when the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed through all, all the empire, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. This decree, king, is going to cause all wives to honor their husbands. You're, you're about to lose uh, all of the, the marital relationships in the entire Persian empire. But if you establish this one law, everybody is going to fall into line, both great and small, everybody. Clearly foolish, clearly over the top, but it's a law. Persia operates by means of law. Should we be doing this when we're drunk? Should we be making decisions right now, establishing new laws that cannot be changed while we're drunk? But again, this is the law of the Medes and the Persians, and this is how God establishes his sovereign work. The reply pleases the king and the princess, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. So he establishes this decree, and he sends letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and very importantly, to every people in their own language. You see what's going on? In the heart of this massive power-hungry kingdom in the midst of all of this drunken establishment of laws that cannot be changed. The people of God are having their language preserved. In the midst of a time in history when God's people are weak and far away from the land and under Persian rule, their language is being preserved. 
along with a multitude of languages. The Persians believed that they were so uh, uh, generous to, the, to their people that they could allow them to just keep uh, speaking their languages. That each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. God is bringing about the preservation of the language of the people of God in such a place. This is one of the ways that God is working. Memucan uh, has proposed uh, through his decree that he declared in verse 20 to scare women into honoring their husbands. And it goes out by means of the Pony Express, uh, the Persian version of it, uh, on to every place so that by decree of the king now, the Hebrew language, the common tongue, the vernacular should be spoken in every household. God is doing something else. He's doing something that seems to be on the side, but this is part of his plan. He's already established through the actions of Vashti saying no, that there will be another queen. He hasn't changed the structure of Persia. He hasn't changed their radical commitment to the laws of the Medes and the Persians and establishing new laws that can't be changed when you're drunk. He hasn't established, uh, changed any of that, but he's working in and around and through all of these actions of sinful people. God is bringing about the means by which his people will be delivered quietly and under the noses of the power-hungry Persians. During the Reformation, the Bible was translated into the common language of the people, and it was a very important step in the spread of God's word. God works in these providential ways to establish his word. And he's continuing to do this. There are parallels. God's providential work continues to march forward. God is so sovereign that he works throughout history in invisible ways, in unseen ways, and he's always working out his decrees. Our catechism puts it this way. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question eight. How doth God execute his decrees? The answer, God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Question 11, what are the works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. All his creatures and all their actions, including King Ahasuerus, Commanding Vashti to come before him. Vashti saying no and establishing a new law. He's working through all of that. He will raise up Esther because God is sovereign. He's the king, not Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is not the king of the world. He's not even able to cause his own wife to do what he wants. Even though he thinks he has all of this power. Persia is a parody of the rule of God. God is the true sovereign one. And he's the one who's brought about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what he's done? We just read about it in Ephesians 5. 
If you consider what is being accomplished uh, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you understand that God is bringing about a group of people uh, under the noses of people who uh, shake their fist at God, people who seek power and control and dominance in our society today, in our world today. And he's bringing about a group of people that operate completely differently. People that submit to one another out of reverence for God, as it says in Ephesians 5.21. People who become a picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. Even marriages that are established on a different footing than the marriage of this pagan king and Queen Vashti. They're not the model. They're not the model for Christians. They're not the model for how we should interact in our, in our relationships. But God in his sovereign power has brought about the means by which Jesus Christ could be born into this world. And Jesus Christ uh, living out a godly life in the face of the, of the Romans and the Jewish leaders who were against him and Satan trying to take him out began to live out the relationship with his Father in heaven so that it was visibly displayed. And it's recorded on the pages of Scripture, the character of Jesus Christ under pressure, under persecution, establishing the character of believers who are joined to him today. In the midst of a world full of uh, crazy, power-hungry um, actions by sinful people. The church united to Jesus Christ is becoming a beautiful bride. Esther will stand out in the book of Esther. She will be the replacement for Vashti. Vashti is beautiful in her own way. Vashti has, has had the courage to say no to the king, but it sets up the means by which God is at work. God is at work even in Vashti's refusal, even in King Ahasuerus's uh, drunken rage. God is at work. How much more then is he at work in you? You have the Holy Spirit who joins with Jesus Christ who begin to exhibit the character of Christ in the midst of a fallen world. And if God can preserve the language of the people of God in a place like Persia, so that the people of God have his word, then God can provide for you in the midst of the interactions that you have with those who are foolishly powerful or powerfully foolish. Our place is not to simply laugh Although at the beginning of the book of Esther, it looks like we should. No, we need to continue with the story. We need to see how God works out his purposes. We need to see the big picture in the midst of this sort of crazy interaction. We need to see how God is working. And that is what we have the opportunity to see today. Throughout the the uh, Christian church, there are people who have stories of power-hungry people who have tried to do things and say things that would keep Christians under their thumb. And yet the character of Jesus Christ is displayed 
in every uh, group of believers who are united to him. We are united to the Lord Jesus Christ and we are becoming like him. We are becoming like uh, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. We are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, story of the way in which uh, you worked in a sovereign and invisible way in the midst of power-hungry Persia, how you caused even the interaction of uh, this drunken, power-hungry king uh, and his beautiful queen who said no to open up the door for the language of your people to be preserved, for Esther to become queen, and for the people of God to be delivered from one who from long ago hated the people of God. And we know that this world is full of power-hungry people, but we know behind all of that, there is the activity of that great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, the one who desires to take out the people of God. But he can't have us because we belong to Jesus Christ. And in the midst of a world that's full of power-hungry people and dominance and foolish decisions because of lust for power, you are building your church to be a beautiful bride, reflecting the character of Jesus Christ in the midst of all of these events. And the book of Esther steadies us, helps us to see that you will certainly work out your purposes, that you will certainly work out your plan, and that you are not limited by the actions of sinful men and sinful women. In fact, through your providential care, through your holy and wise and powerful preserving and governing of all of your creatures and all their actions, you are bringing about the redemptive purposes that are best for the people of God. You are preserving your people through everything that happens to be that bride. And we thank you for that confidence that the book of Esther gives us. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, to whom we are united in a union that never changes, no matter what. And we thank you that you are making us more like him through everything that happens. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.